Now this might be confusing. You might be wondering what he's talking about. I'm going to read to you the fulfillment of this prophecy. Welcome to Uncaged Bible Study. We hope our name gives it away as we are looking to unleash God's word in its entirety from beginning to end and unlock the power within the pages of scripture. We aim to restore the authority of God's word in a world that has lost its understanding of doctrinal truths, as well as shed a light on how from the first page to the last page, the Bible is pointing us towards Messiah, our Savior, Jesus. So we hope you enjoy the Bible study today. And if you did, follow us or share the podcast to help us spread the word around the globe. And if you leave us a five-star review, that's a great way to let us know that you say amen and are impacted by what you've heard. So thank you for joining us on this journey. And in the words of Charles Spurgeon, the Bible is like a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. Let's unlock the cage together. So, Isaiah chapters 7 through 10 is the goal. We'll see how we do. Um, these chapters in particular are well known, and usually a couple of them you're going to recognize some verses that are typically read around Christmas time because of what they predict. So, let's dig into it. Um, chapter 7 it says, Now it came to pass. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. If you're confused because of all the names, let me help you break it down. This is basically giving us a time frame for when this prophecy comes. Remember, uh, Isaiah basically prophesied from about starting at around 739 BC for about 52 years. So shortly before the Assyrians come in to wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel, um, as Isaiah is prophesying in, prophesying in the southern kingdom of Judah, he is working as a prophet for the southern kingdom of Judah down in Jerusalem. Now this is telling us that King Uzziah had passed and jo King Jotham had passed, and it's now around 735 BC. It's giving us an idea of the time frame. And it's not solely focusing on Jerusalem and the southern kingdom. It's mentioning the northern kingdom that they were at war with, as well as the king of Syria. And it's sa saying that basically that while Israel is at this civil war, this sort of separation from each other, where they've split off into the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel is now partnering with an enemy in Syria to attack the southern kingdom of Judah. That's what's going on here. And it says, and it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. Ephraim is just another word for the northern kingdom of Israel because Ephraim is the largest tribe that exists in the north. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. So they're going to be coming against Jerusalem. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, 
go out now to meet Ahaz and Sheir Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to Fuller's Field. Now, this is really interesting. It's hard to note when you're just reading it. But Isaiah is being told something by God, very specific. And he tells him to meet King Ahaz, who is a wicked king in the southern kingdom of Judah. But he also tells him to bring his son, Sheer Jashub. And his name, Sheer Jashub, means a remnant shall return. So as Isaiah is getting this message from God that the northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria are going to come up against Jerusalem, and he's getting these messages about the eventual judgment coming on the southern kingdom of Judah, he's reminded as he goes to tell Ahaz to bring your son, which his name means a remnant shall return, that God will protect a remnant of the people that he judges. And so his name is important. Verse 4, And say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, the son of Remaliah, because, or Remaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. So now God is basically saying, This thing that's coming, where the northern kingdom and Syria are going to try to come against you, it's not going to work. So that's all that that's saying. But... Uh, I, the, the point I wanted to make was when you're reading some of this, it can be confusing because it says things like talking about the northern kingdom of Israel saying, let us go up against Judah, which is in the south. And we think of maps as north and south, up and down. The upper part of the map is the northern part of the map, and the southern part of the map is where you would say down. You would think they should say, let us go down to Judah. So then you get confused in your head about what you're looking at. The point is, in their time, they were thinking about altitude. Jerusalem existed on a mountain, and it was higher elevation. So even though they were marching south, if you were looking at a map, you'd think down. They're actually thinking about the terrain, and they're saying we need to march, march up. So don't let that confuse you about what direction people are traveling. All right. Verse Eight, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of, Re uh, of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. Okay, so verse 8, it says that there's going to be 65 years, and then Ephraim will be broken. Now, in the very first verse, we got a, a hint of the time frame that this prophecy is being uh, told, which is about 735 BC. Well, we know that the Assyrian Empire, just from history, takes out the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. So it's only 13 years before Assyria takes the north. So what is 
God mean when he says it will be 65 years and Ephraim will be broken? Since it's only 13 years before they're actually taken over by the Assyrians. Well, the Assyrian way of taking over a land didn't just involve conquering the landmass. It also involved assimilating the people by importing members from their kingdom into the land that they conquered. So any remnant that stayed there would have to be assimilated to the culture of the Assyrians. And the last, uh, the last import of foreigners into the land that they conquered uh, happened at around 670 BC, which happened to be 65 years after this prophecy. So the, at that point, they were considered broken people because they had gone from being Israelites to really Samaritans, sort of mixed in with foreigners uh, and assimilated into the Assyrian culture. So this prophecy is very specific, and it came fully to pass in the time frame that God said it would, and said so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. So this is at the very end of this prophecy, uh, King Ahaz gets a little bit of a note from Isaiah. You need to believe. If you don't believe in, in God or put your faith in God, your throne will not be established. Now, verse 10, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And this is what's really going on. God is looking to protect his people. Ahaz, from the royal lineage, is the rightful king on the throne, and Isaiah is the prophet used to get his attention. And God is telling Isaiah, tell Ahaz to ask for a sign. Ask for anything for him to know that I'm on his side. I will help protect my people. But the response from Ahaz sounds very religious, but it's really just cowardice. He says, I won't ask. That's where you get the real point. God is telling you to communicate with him, and he says, I won't deal with God. And then he says the religious thing, nor will I test the Lord. What he's really saying is he puts his trust in himself, not God. And so verse 13 he said, Hear now, O house of David, it is a small thing for you to weary men. But will you weary God, my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And as we know, Emmanuel means God with us. So Ahaz ignored God, and God basically says, I'm going to give a sign myself, and you're going to see what's coming. Now, there is what's called in Scripture, we've talked about this before, the law of double reference, something that happens in the very near future that is a fulfillment of a prophecy, and then something that is an ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy much further on. Now, this is saying in Ahaz's time, 
there will be a young maiden who bears a son who will represent the end or the judgment that is coming. But the ultimate fulfillment we find in Matthew 1.23, which references this verse specifically, where a true virgin is given the Son of God to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born as the Savior. And because he's the Son of God, he really is God with us. So we'll find out more about the near coming or near fulfillment of this prophecy as we move forward. It said, Curds and honey he shall eat, and that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house days that have not come since, that, since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will come to rest and all of them will rest in the desolate valleys and in the clefts of the rocks and all the thorns and all the pastures. So this is really going to say that God is going to use the kingdom of Assyria to humble the kingdom of Judah. They're going to come up against it. Now, while they might not prevail against the kingdom of Judah, because God is still going to protect them, he is going to humble Judah using this kingdom. And that's what this is talking about. In the same day, the Lord will shave with a hired razor with those from beyond the river, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and will also remove the beard. This is specifically talking about the shame that will come on the king, kingdom of Judah because of how God will use the Assyrians. And shaving someone's beard or removing someone's beard would have been considered shame in biblical times. And as a man with a beard, it should be shame today. That's what my wife thinks anyway. She won't let me shave mine because she thinks I would look shameful without a beard because I'd probably look like a teenager. It says, it shall be in that day that a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. So it shall be from the abundance of milk they give that he will eat curds. For curds and honey everyone will eat who is left in the land. It shall happen in that day that wherever there could be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver, it will be for briars and thorns. With arrows and bows men will come there because all the land will become briars and thorns. And to any hill which could be dug with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but it will become a range for oxen and a place for the sheep to roam. And so this judgment that's going to come when God is going to use Assyria to humble Judah, he's basically saying he's going to put shame on the people of Judah, and part of that is going to be how their crops are going to be useless. They're going to destroy the cropland, and they're going to be afraid to work it and come into it um, because of whatever God is going to do to judge them. In chapter 8, Moreover, the Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalal Hashbaz, and I will take for myself faithful witness to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. Now, 
he's talking about the name of this name that he's asking to write on a scroll, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means the spoil speeds and the prey hastens. So whatever Assyria is going to do, they're going to do it quickly and they're going to utilize all the resources of the land very quickly, which fits with what we just read, that they're going to consume the vegetation and make it barren in thistles and thorns and humble the kingdom of Judah. So verse three, then I went to the prophetess, meaning Isaiah went to his wife and she, he calls her the prophetess because the son that she's going to bear is a fulfillment of prophecy. So she becomes a prophetess. And she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Now we have a young maiden who has borne a son to the prophet for a prophecy to be fulfilled for the Assyrians to commit judgment against the people of Judah. So you have the near fulfillment now of that prophecy of the virgin shall bear a son, but it's not an ultimate fulfillment because it wasn't a virgin. <laughs> it's just a young maiden. For the child shall have knowledge to cry my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. So before this child is old enough to say mommy and daddy, basically, that is when the kingdom of Assyria will come and cause judgment. And he will take the spoil of Samaria and be taken away before the king of Assyria. So the northern kingdom of Israel is definitely going to get destroyed by the time this child can say mommy and daddy. The Lord spoke to me again saying, inasmuch as these people refuse the waters of Shiloah that flow softly and rejoice in resin and Remaliah's son. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river strong and mighty, the king of Assyria and all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and will go over all his banks. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And so when the kingdom of Assyria commits this judgment over the northern kingdom of Israel, he will also creep into the land of Judah. And it says he will creep in so much that it will reach up to the neck of the kingdom of Judah, all the way down to just outside of Jerusalem. And so it says, be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from afar uh, countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. <clears throat> Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. So even though this judgment comes on the northern kingdom of Israel and creeps into the southern kingdom of Judah, God will hold them back so that they don't overtake the kingdom of Judah and they don't get Jerusalem. And so he's saying he will hold them back because God is with us. Verse 11, for the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people saying, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats or be troubled. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow, 
Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. He will be a sanctuary. So you have following this, this idea of Isaiah talking to these people saying, don't fear what everybody else fears. What you should fear is the Lord. You should put your faith and trust in him rather than in yourselves and fearing your enemies around you. Fear the Lord only. If you fear him, he will be a sanctuary in verse 14. But a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So because they won't put their faith in God, eventually, just like the northern kingdom of Israel will be completely evacuated out of the land, so will the southern kingdom and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble, they shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Zion. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards. So what's happening right now is Isaiah is really speaking to like his disciples, the other prophets or teachers in the land uh, of Judah. And he's saying, there are going to people, people who come to you and ask you these things. When they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living to the law and to the testimony? If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They will pass through it hard pressed and hungry. And it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble in darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. So people are going to start looking for answers of the judgment that's coming and understanding what's going on. And when they go, they won't be seeking out the prophets. They'll be seeking out mediums, people who try to converse with the dead or wizards or witchcraft. And they're going to be seeking out other answers. They're going to be seeking for the dead. Why would they do that? They can't speak on behalf of the living. They should be seeking their God. This is what he's saying. So he's talking to his disciples saying, when you encounter people, tell them the truth. Tell them who they should be seeking. Seek God, not these other ways. Because when you do this, you're going to, you're going to look to the earth and you will see trouble and darkness and gloom of anguish and you'll be driven into darkness if you are not focused on God, but focused on these like earthly pursuits. Chapter 9. Now, here's where it gets real good. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. And when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Now this might be confusing. You might be wondering what he's talking about. I'm going to read to you the fulfillment of this prophecy in the New Testament. You can find it in Matthew 4, 
starting in verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been the Baptist had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the, by the, way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region in a shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What that is, is the moment Jesus began his public ministry. And he began his public ministry right where Isaiah said he would. Just outside the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And he goes and he begins preaching. So, Upon them, a light has shined. That light, the light of the world, Jesus. The Messiah has begun his public ministry. And that is the fulfillment of the beginning of chapter 9. <clears throat> Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. Therefore, before you, according to the joy of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his his oppressor as in the day of Midian, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in the blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establishment, establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So you have this sort of, again, Isaiah sees and he looks into the future and he sees the Messiah's future, but he sees both the first and the second coming almost as one thing. Uh, and like I said, when I pointed out last week, you look at a mountain range from far back, it looks like it's one in one place. Like it's just one piece of a horizon line. But as you get closer, you find out that the peaks of the mountains are really far apart. And that's what's happening here. Isaiah is looking into the far into the future. And so what he sees is kind of blurry. And as we get closer, the picture gets clearer and you see how different the peaks are apart. And so you see, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Yeah, that's the birth of Christ. And the child being born is absolutely a sign of the humanity of Christ. But the government will be put upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Now, he's going to be called Mighty God, so clearly the divinity of Christ is also on display here. But the government resting upon his shoulders is really the fulfillment of Revelation 19, when Jesus returns, wipes out his enemies, and sets up his kingdom. But then you see this, these other names. Everlasting Father. Now, what does this actually mean? <clears throat> it's odd to translate into English, but 
you almost have to Yoda it and look at it the other way. It's the father of everlasting. The originator of eternity is what it's saying. And remember, John chapter 1 says that all things were created through him. So Jesus really is the originator of time. And so he is the father of eternity, is what it's saying. So he is from outside of time. He was before things began, but he's also human. So this is the strangeness that's it's really put into words in Isaiah chapter 9, and it gives us theology around who Christ is 700 years before he's born. <clears throat> and he will sit upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, and he will be there forever. This is clearly talking about Revelation 19 through 22, where Jesus comes back, sets up his kingdom, and ushers in eternity at the end of the thousand-year reign. Now, <clears throat> the punishment of the northern kingdom is what we read about next. The Lord sent a word against Jacob, and it has fallen on Israel. All the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart. So that's important. He's recounting the attitude of the northern kingdom. This is how they talk about God or about themselves. It says, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stone. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. So their arrogance and pride is all about them. They have no reliance on God. Even when they've been defeated and their cities in ruins and crumbles, they think they can handle it. They're not relying on God. Verse 11, therefore, the Lord shall set up against the adversaries of resin, the adversaries of resin against him and spur his enemies on. The Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. For the people who do not turn to him, who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore, the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush in one day. The elder and honorable, he is the head, the prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. For the elders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. <clears throat> you got this picture of this haughty arrogance of the northern kingdom of Israel. They clearly have false prophets and elders and teachers and leaders who are leading the people astray, and the people are following them like sheep right into destruction, and God is letting them have the circumstances. He's letting them deal with the circumstances of their behavior. So therefore, the Lord will have no joy in young men, nor have mercy on the fatherless and the window, widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns as the fire. It shall devour the briars and the thorns and kindle in the thickets of the forest. They shall mount up like rising smoke. Though the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people shall be as fuel for the fire. No man shall spare his brother, and he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry, and he shall devour on the left hand and not be satisfied. Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim, and Ephraim Manasseh, 
together that day shall be against Judah. So that is really just discovering how in this time of folly and judgment and failure, the people will turn on each other, tribe against tribe, Ephraim against Manasseh, Manasseh against Ephraim. These are different tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel, and they basically turn against each other, making it really easy for their enemies. Um, now, before we get into chapter 10, I want to remind you of chapter 7. Because when the Lord sent Isaiah to go meet Ahaz, he had him bring his son, Sheer Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. We're going to get a glimpse of that in chapter 10. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune when they have prescribed to rob the needy of justice and to take what is right from the poor of my people. The widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. What will you do in the day of punishment? And in the desolation which will come from afar, to whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your glory? Without me, they shall bow down among the prisoners, and they shall fall among the slain. For all his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out. So God's judgment is coming. The people aren't turning to him. His judgment is not going to turn away because they don't want to turn to him. And now God points to Assyria. Assyria is the kingdom or the nation that God is using to commit the judgment on Israel and Judah at this point. But now God is turning against Assyria because they go too far. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. I'm going to send Assyria against the northern kingdom. I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Yet, he does not mean so, nor does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off a few nations. For he says, are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Kelno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? And so what's being said here is as God has used the kingdom of Assyria to pass this judgment on Israel, the Assyrian king has gotten very prideful in his own abilities. And he's basically saying, Israel, or Ephraim, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom of Judah, they're no different than these other countries we've already conquered. They're no different than Carchemish and Arpad and Samaria and Damascus. They're no different. We conquered them because our gods are stronger than their gods. We are mightier. And so his pride, as he goes and fights against the people of God, he now thinks he can take them out, and he's put himself above God, the king of Assyria. So this is God's response, is my hand has found the kingdom of the idols whose carved images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria, as I have done to Samaria and her idols, shall I not also do to Jerusalem and her idols? But God's saying he's going, he's going to pass judgment on the northern kingdom. He's also eventually going to pass judgment on the southern kingdom. Therefore, it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all of his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem that he will say, 
I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. So when he's done punishing the northern kingdom, he will punish the king of Assyria because of his pride. For he says, this is the speaking as the king of Assyria, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. By my wisdom, for I am prudent. Also, I have removed the boundaries of the people and have robbed their treasuries. So I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. My hand has found like a nest in the riches of the people. And as one gathers eggs that are left, I have gathered all the earth, and there was no one who moved his wing nor opened his mouth without even a peep. And so that's how haughty and prideful the king of Assyria has gotten. He really thinks he's God of all the earth. Verse 15, the response. Shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? What an interesting metaphor. God has used the kingdom of Assyria to chop down and cause judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel. And he says, shall the axe boast itself against him who chops with it? The axe is nothing without someone to cause it to have momentum. Otherwise, it just sits there as a rock. Or shall, shall the saw exalt himself uh, against him who saws with it, as if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up? or as if a staff could lift it up as if it were not wood. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will send leanness among his fat ones, and under his glory he will kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. So the light of Israel will be for a fire and his holy one for a flame. It will burn and devour his throne and briars in one day, and it will consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body, and they will be as when a sick man wastes away, then the rest of the trees of the forest will be so few in number that a child may write them. So there will be so little left of Assyria that even a child who can barely write could spell out what's left, is what God is saying about this. And then the hope comes, and it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as have escaped of the house of Jacob will never again depend on him who defeated them, but will depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. The destruction decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. Now, eventually this absolutely comes true. After the Babylonian exile, the people turn their hearts back to God and a small remnant, after 70 years of being exiled, come back to the land of Israel and rebuild Jerusalem. And we went through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah kind of discussing all of that. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrian. He shall strike you with a rod and lift up his staff against you in the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while and the indignation will cease, as will my anger in their destruction. So, you got this picture. God is going to use the Assyrian Empire to create judgment fully against the northern kingdom of Israel. They will wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel, consume them, and within 65 years of exiling them, they'll repopulate Samaria 
with foreigners and basically bring them to waste. When they go against the northern kingdom, they will wage war against the southern kingdom as well, and they will creep into the land of the southern kingdom of Judah, but they will not ultimately win the war. God will protect the southern kingdom of Judah, even though they will be judged by the kingdom of Assyria, they will not overtake the kingdom of Judah. It shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed because of the anointing oil. So God will defeat them, the kingdom of Assyria, as they try to take on Jerusalem. And this, we read a little bit about that when we went through the books of the kings. Now, for the next few verses, like four or five verses, um, it's just cities that Assyria conquered. It's just a list of them. And then jump down to verse 32. It says, as yet he will remain at Nob that day. He will shake his his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. So he'll creep into the southern kingdom of Judah, but he won't make it to Jerusalem. He won't be able to defeat them because God will protect the southern kingdom uh, and he won't let them be fully overtaken. Behold, the Lord of hosts will loop off the bow with terror. Those of high stature will be hewn down, and the haughty will be humbled, and he will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. And now what he's saying is, even after all of this, God will then turn his attention towards Assyria, and because of the pride of the Assyrian king, he will take them out. Now part of this is fulfilled during King Hezekiah's reign, when God defends them against the Assyrians as they're trying to take out Jerusalem, and God protects them and pushes the Assyrians back up to the northern kingdom of Israel. This is fully fulfilled in 605 to 586 BC, when King Nebuchadnezzar comes and he takes out the southern kingdom of Judah. Before he takes out the southern kingdom of Judah, he actually conquers the Assyrians and takes over that entire empire, and Babylon becomes the number one ruling empire in the world before it takes out the southern kingdom of Judah. So God turns his destruction from the northern kingdom of Israel to the Assyrians who he used to judge the northern kingdom of Israel, and he uses the Babylonians to do it. And in that exile, where the Babylonians come and take over the southern kingdom of Judah, in that time frame, a remnant of the Jews turn their hearts back to God. And 70 years later, when the Persians take over Babylon, the Persians allow the people, the remnant, to go back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding. And so all of what was just discussed in these four chapters, we read about in 2 Kings, Ezra, and Nehemiah, or the ultimate fulfillments that happened in the book of Matthew or that will happen in Revelation 19. So, Isaiah covers a lot, and a lot of ground in a short period of time. But he gets a lot of things right. The most important thing, though, is as we're approaching Christmas, to remember the things that he prophesied. A virgin will give birth to a child who we will call Emmanuel, God with us. And unto us a son is given, will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And we were given this gift to reconcile with God, Jesus. And Jesus will return 
at some point and set up the kingdom and the government will be on his shoulders and there will be everlasting peace. And if you look at just what Isaiah has already predicted so precisely, it's very easy to believe that he'll get the other predictions right. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the book of Isaiah. Thank you for the predictions that came true and that will come true. Thank you for your son who reconciled us to you so that we can have everlasting life. But also thank you for everything throughout history, the fulfillment of your word that shows us that you are the authority, you are in charge, you know the end from the beginning. And God, no matter what happens, as dark as it seems or when things don't make sense, you're in control. I'm sure it didn't make sense that God's people were getting taken out by the Assyrians. But it did make sense that they returned, just like you said they would. And it made sense when a Messiah was born. And it will make sense when he returns. Because you're the one in control. And you seek to have a relationship with us. Help us to really follow you and to share that with others. In Jesus' name, amen.